Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. Acts chapter 3, that is where we will be the majority of today, but if you want, you can, I'll give you a sneak preview here, you can uh, put your thumb in Ephesians 2, because we will flip there. But Acts chapter 3 is where we will be. One of the biggest disconnects between reading the Bible and looking at our own lives is the miracles. We see them clear as day happening over and over and over again in Scripture. Chapter after chapter, there's another miracle. Something that God has done that we cannot reproduce. And we see them because we're given a sneak peek behind the curtain. So, for instance, in the book of Job, we see the meeting that takes place between God and Satan prior to Job's experience. Throughout many of the supernatural acts and, and interventions in Scripture, we're given a sneak peek behind the scenes. And it's easy to look at those moments and compare them to our lives and say, hey, wait, why aren't those things happening to me? See, it turns out our, our lives are much more like Esther's. If you didn't know, the book of Esther is the only book of the Bible where the name of God is not even mentioned once. God doesn't show up. He doesn't do, he doesn't, he doesn't see me, well, he doesn't overtly show up. It's not obvious. And Esther has to figure out how to navigate a complex political issue and a cultural issue. He, she's trying to figure out the best way to navigate these things, and she prays, and everyone prays, but God, and never says, and then God answered by doing this. Never said God intervened by doing this. In, in fact, the way that God intervenes, you're left to infer from reading the text. You've got to see the working of God through the normal, everyday actions of people. Our lives much more reflect that of Esther's experience. Granted, not all of us are going off marrying a king or a queen, though that did just happen recently. But our lives much more reflect that story than they seem to reflect that of Jonah who gets swallowed by a fish for three days and gets spit back out with no problem. They don't seem to reflect that of the man who uh, was blind and Jesus puts mud in his eye and suddenly he can see. So why aren't those things happening to us? Why aren't those things happening to those that I love? See, today I want to talk about healing. Because it's easy for us to read these stories and compare them to our lives. We read the, the miraculous part and we stop and we ask, why not me too? Why am I stuck like this? I have faith like they do. Why isn't my ailment healed? Or why isn't my loved one, my mom, my brother, my sister, my friend, why aren't they healed? Why aren't they better? They've been going to church for decades. Why aren't they better? Why is there a seeming disconnect between the healing miracles of Scripture and what we experience today? Absolutely, miracles happen. They still happen. But why does the frequency seem so different? 
one of the hardest things as a pastor is to preach on things like this because the answer is never quite as black and white and cut and dry as I would like it to be. But hopefully with your patience we're going to navigate through this so that we can figure out what this actually means for us. In the New Testament and really throughout Scripture, miracles happen for three main reasons. The first reason is they reveal God. In John 9, Jesus heals a man born from blind from birth. And when the disciples ask him, they say, Lord, whose sin caused this man to be blind? Was it his or his parents? And Jesus says, it was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, the purpose, one of the purposes of miracles is to reveal God. Number two, they fulfill prophecy. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist sends messengers to ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah. John is sitting in jail, facing his soon death. And he's saying, look, was everything I did worth it? Am I going to die for nothing? Or Jesus, are you really the person that I've been waiting for? And so Jesus responds and he says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. See, Jesus isn't making any of those words up. He's actually quoting prophecies from Isaiah. <coughs> Turn to Isaiah 35. You can find that very thing. It won't be exactly in those words, but when Jesus uses these key phrases, it is very easy to understand, oh, Jesus is referencing the prophecy. So first, they reveal God. Second, they fulfill the prophecies. And third, they prove Jesus' identity. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, John tells us this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The miracles prove Jesus is who he says he is. But there's something greater going on behind the scenes of each of these purposes. Behind each of these, there's one common theme that can be seen. But what is that thread that ties these together? And what is God really after by performing these miracles or by allowing his disciples to perform them? This is where we enter Acts chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. This is just after Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples and Peter preaches a sermon that is heard in everyone's native language. And thousands are baptized as a result. And as, the time, as time passes, we, we enter Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Why was that man placed at the entrance of the temple? Why was he placed outside of the gate? It says they carried him, they, they put him there, 
And that's all. It doesn't even say who they are. It just says daily they carried him. You see, those people would carry the lame man, they would set him, and then they would walk into the temple, but they would leave him at the gate. Why? Because if you were, if you were sick, if you had some sort of permanent ailment, whether it was leprosy, whether it was paralysis, whatever it may have been, you were considered cursed by God. This is where we get the, the idea of being unclean ritually. Someone who was unclean could not enter the temple. And so this man would get as close to it as possible, knowing that the people that would pass him by were people who were looking for God. And maybe, just maybe, there were people who loved God. And so he says, look, this is the place that I can ask for things, and, and these people are known to be the most generous. Maybe they will be willing to help me. Let's continue reading in verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Look at verse 8 one more time. All right, I'm sorry, look at verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. It's very, very easy for us to stop right there and to say there was the miracle. This man was healed. Why isn't that happening for me? It's unfair that this man gets to be healed and, and, and I don't. But if we stop there, we miss the second half of the miracle. Let's read verse 8 again. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. If you want to worship God and you're in the Bible, if you're living in the time of the Old Testament, even here in the beginning of Acts, you're living in the time of Jesus. Where do you go if you want to worship God? If you want to worship God, you go to the temple. And up until the book of Acts fully plays out, the only way you could worship God correctly was through that system. And what was at the heart of the temple? Well, that would be the presence of God. But this man was forbidden from entering because of his condition. So the closest that he could get to God was the outer gates. Now you might counter me and, and you might say, well, Jesus did away with the temple system, so in the book of Acts they didn't have to follow that anymore. You're correct. But theologically they hadn't figured that out yet. And what plays out throughout Acts and throughout the New Testament is them figuring out, okay, what does our life look like now that Jesus has done away with the old covenant and give us the, given us this new covenant of grace and love? 
What did the man do immediately when he rose to his feet? It says he entered the temple with them. You see, the second half of this miracle is that this man was finally given access to God. This man who wasn't allowed in, who would be left by people at the gate, and then they would abandon him and walk in the door. He'd be passed by the disciples every day. He'd be passed by anyone who was a believer, and he would ask for things, but he could himself never access God. Because he was considered unclean, and he was considered someone who was not allowed to be inside. And when the people see him walking, it is evidence that God did something. God gave this man what he needed to be able to access God in the religious system that existed. You see, the healing was only part of the miracle. It's not the full experience. But we look at these moments and we become jealous of this man. We say, I wish I could be healed like him. But what if the purpose of healing in scripture isn't about the healing itself? but about what the healing meant for each person who received it. The common thread that runs through each miraculous healing in the Bible is this one thing, access to God. Every time that Jesus heals someone, he says, all right, now go to the temple and present yourself to the priest that you may be declared clean. In other words, Jesus encounters someone, and after they encounter Jesus, they now are given access, the same level of access that everyone else has. In fact, God giving people access to himself is quite literally the entire narrative of Scripture. In the beginning in Eden, God creates man and woman. He puts them in the garden, and they have full, direct access to God. They walk with him in the garden. But then they sin and they lose it. They lose access to God. And in the Old Testament, we are given back indirect access through the temple and the sacrificial systems. They say, look, you can't speak to me directly, but I've set up a, a priestly system and a temple system that if you follow this, you have access still. You have access to forgiveness. You have access to the way of life that I have set up for you. In the Gospels, what does Jesus give us? What does Jesus give us? He gives us direct access to God for you and for me. And in Revelation, what is finally restored? That same access we had at the very beginning. Not just access to speak to him and to worship him directly, but access to walk and talk with God because he's right next to you. That you can physically see, physically touch, and interact with God. The entire narrative of Scripture is God restoring access to himself. And we see that being played out through a right relationship with him. But see, I need you to see this for yourself. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. This is an, an epistle from Paul, a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to a people that primarily were not Jewish, 
They were people who converted to Christianity from any number of different religions, worldviews, perspectives, and bloodlines and cultures. So in verse 11, he says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by, the, by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Whenever you see the word Gentiles in Scripture, if you've, if you've been a believer for a while, I, I expect you to know this. If you're brand new, don't worry about it. There are two main types of people in, in Scripture. There's Jews and then everyone else. Everyone else is a Gentile. If you were not Jewish, if you were not um, part of that bloodline and part of that culture, you were considered a Gentile. So guess what you and I are? Gentiles. So anytime you see the word Gentile in the New Testament, you can be sure that this is talking to you. This is you that were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, you that were called far off by those inside. You that were called not chosen by God by those who were chosen by God. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, Jesus steps in and by his sacrifice and his resurrection, he says, look, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. Everyone gets to be a part of God's chosen people now. Everyone is grafted in. Everyone is allowed to be a part of this. I have made a way for everyone to become God's chosen people. That's what it says when, I, when he says, I want to make a new man. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no more calling the uncircumcision by those who are circumcised. There's no more saying, you are not chosen by God, I am. Everyone has the opportunity to be chosen by God. And I would actually rephrase that and I would say, everyone is chosen by God. It's your choice to choose Him. And He gives us the power to do that. But God has chosen everyone. He died for everyone. And now the choice to reciprocate that love is ours. Let's continue reading verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And listen to this. This was an accident, a promise. But it's incredible. Verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Greek word for access here is prosagogin, or prosagogain, I'm sorry. 
And it literally translates, translates to access. The four times it's used, it translates quite literally to access. I decided to look this up in a few other translations, and it's likely I'd be, there might be one or two that don't use that exact word, but I know King James Version uses it. NIV uses it. ESV uses it, which is what I'm reading from. Jesus is about this theme, access. Through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look, Jesus is the thing that unites us, and Jesus is the being, is the person, is the bridge from us to God. He inserts himself in that old temple process and he says, look, you don't need priests anymore. You've got me. I will be your priest and you can talk to me anywhere. Through me, you have access to God. So whenever Jesus shows up and he heals someone, he's saying, look, now you have access. It's not about just letting someone walk. It's not about letting someone see or hear. It's about what those things mean now for the person receiving them. That they finally have access. I can't imagine how difficult it would be if you were deaf in this time because everything historically was passed on orally. The scriptures were read to you. You did not read them. If you can't hear, what access do you have to learn about God? Someone, no one's going to write you a letter. <laughs> Every miracle is about giving and restoring access to God. And it's what he gives us by his death and resurrection access. And I see, I think it's 53, it says, by his wounds we are healed. And Peter quotes this. And I believe it's 2 Peter. He says, by his wounds, you are healed. Well, hold on. Jesus died. I suddenly can't. I, I suddenly, I still have my asthma. I got baptized. I still got back problems. So what does that mean? By his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. By Jesus' death and resurrection. And you must see those two things together. Jesus' death paid the price. Jesus' resurrection conquers sin. By doing those two things, the healing that we receive is not meant to simply be physical. It is meant to be spiritual. Romans tells us that we were dead, but Christ raised us. And that when we are baptized, it is, it is symbolic and saying that when we, when we go under the water, we die with Christ. And when we come back up, we are raised to life a new creation. It's why Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And he says that no one comes to the Father except through him. 
It's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God in Jesus are yes, and in him, amen. All the promises of God are fulfilled through Jesus. You see, the miracles are not about physical healing in and of itself. They are about granting us access to God. But most of the time, we are praying for a miracle of healing for ourselves, not realizing that we've already been given what the point of those miracles is. Access. Because now, if you can't walk, now, if you can't hear, now, if you can't see, now, if you have leprosy, which, really glad that's not really a thing for us right here. Now, if you have asthma and can't breathe, now, if you have back problems, guess what? You have the same access to God that everyone else does. And no one gets to take that from you. But we pray for physical healing as if physical healing is the ultimate manifestation of who God is. They're only signs. And God has already revealed every sign we need. The problem is many of us are not willing to accept them. Now look, I'm not saying it's easy to take that to the other extreme and say, okay, well then God doesn't heal anyone anymore. That's not true. God absolutely does. What I'm saying is that the urgency of healing is no longer necessary. Because no matter how broken, hurt, or sick you, or, you and I might be, we still have the one thing that matters for all of eternity, access to God. I've told you this story before of when I taught at Forest Lake Academy, there was a sophomore who was no longer enrolled that was uh, diagnosed with brain cancer, a very deadly form. And instead of just giving up in that battle while the school and while everyone in, in Central Florida that, that called themselves an Adventist was praying for this kid, what we watched was this kid transform from a varsity-playing, athletic, good-natured kid into a kid who wheelchair-bound, bald head, whatever it took. He went from stage to stage, pulpit to pulpit, declaring the name of Christ and saying, look, everything will be okay. I don't know that I'm going to make it out of this alive right now, but what I do know is that I'm safe for eternity in Christ. And he preached that the entire last several months of his death, of his life, up until the moment he died. He received the second part of the miracle, the point of every miracle. Access and restoration of a right relationship with God. It's easy for us to get clouded in our judgment and think that the healing is what I want, the healing is what I need. And Jesus says, no, you have everything you need. And notice, even the early church noticed the same trend that we experience today. In James 5, verse 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Hold on, what happened to, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk? Even the early church noticed the trend that the direct miracles that revealed God were suddenly becoming less and less frequent to them 
and the way that they prayed for things and interacted with God was starting to change. God is not some cosmic vending machine that whenever we want to feel better, we pray. And suddenly, that's our quarter, we put it in, we press the button and say, I want, I want my leg to feel better. God is about so much more than that. And listen, I know I'm not trivializing any sickness, illness, or disease. I'm not trivializing any pain. I know exactly how much it hurts. And I know what it's like to lose someone from it. That's why I'm thankful that God has a much bigger perspective than me. When you're really close to the fire, it seems a lot bigger. But God, in his infiniteness, is so far away from it, it's tiny. And there's so much more at play. Francis Chan, a popular evangelical pastor, um, I'm referencing this because I don't believe in plagiarism. Or I believe in plagiarism, which is why I'm not going to plagiarize. But in one of his sermons, you can find it on YouTube, he pulls out a, a super long rope. You can see the rope trail off the stage, off to the side, out of sight. And at the very tip of the rope that he is holding, there's about two inches of red tape around it. And he holds it up and he says, look, this red is our lives. And the rest of the rope is all of eternity. And we're so focused on what happens in that little two inches of space that we forget about all the rest of it. That time that we can't even begin to comprehend. With God, there's a much bigger and different perspective than what we have. And understanding that as Christians, we are not just about this life, we are about eternity. And that when we accept Jesus, it's not about making this life easy. It's about living with Jesus for eternity. The point of Christianity is that you get Jesus. And that Jesus gets you. And even more so, Jesus wants you. Flaws and all. Are there absolutely times that God chooses to reveal himself? Yes. Do I claim to know the mind of God in each and every circumstance? No. When I talk about healing, there is always one portion of this that I have to throw my hands up in the air and say, I don't know. And this is it. I don't know what the application process is that gets it approved or denied when I pray for healing. I know that I am to have faith in Jesus and accept whatever comes my way and believe that he can and he will answer my prayers. But there are some times that the answer is no. And I don't know why. Job lived his life perfectly. He's known as the only man in all the land that feared God and yet he lost everything. And his friends all tried to tell him, well, maybe you sinned, maybe you did something. He's like, no, I didn't. I was doing the best I can. And when God shows up, when, when Job says, look, I want to talk to God, I have some questions for you. God shows up, and he doesn't even answer any of Job's questions. Instead, he responds with like four chapters worth of questions. So where were you when I built the earth? Where were you when I laid its foundations? Where were you when I controlled the weather? Where were you when I put the animals where they needed to be to flourish and thrive? See, I'm much bigger than you, and I have much bigger understanding than you, and I need you to trust me. Because there's a lot more at stake than just those two inches of time. 
When Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda was known as this place of healing that people would crowd around. And yet the only person that, that is healed that we know of for sure is this one man. I don't know if Jesus walked around the whole pool and healed everyone, or he just walked in, healed this one man, and left. I don't know God's selection process for yes and no. And maybe it's better that I don't. My dad died from his first heart attack. My mom has survived three battles with cancer. I don't know why. And yes, I can be angry that my dad is gone, but I can be thrilled that my mom is alive. Amen. I do not claim to stand here and speak from someone who has not experienced the frustration of asking for healing and wondering why it hasn't come. I've prayed for family members and friends for decades, hoping, and, and I know I'm 25, so that tells you when I say decades, I mean basically my whole life. And I'm still waiting for some of those prayers to be answered. And I know many of you have been praying for the same thing longer than I've been alive, and you're still waiting. What I want you to know this morning, God doesn't protect us from all the harsh realities of our sinful world. Because if he did, we wouldn't have a full understanding of what sin is, why it's so terrible, and why following Jesus in eternity with him is such an important thing. Philippians 3.20 tells us, one of my favorite verses in the scripture, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. As Christians, in every prayer that we pray, in every interaction that we have, the one thing we need to keep in mind is that this is not home. Our citizenship is not here. When I go to Europe to visit, my citizenship is here. And when I am a Christian, everywhere I go, my citizenship is in heaven, not anywhere here. What we experience here was never meant to be the fullest expression of life. And yet I believe sometimes when we pray for healing and we pray for an easy life, we hope that this is the fullest expression of life. But it was never meant to be. You and I know it. There's no, there is no place like home. There's nothing like home cooking. There is no place like home. And what is an ever-growing realization for me is this. We aren't home yet. But until then, every single one of us has been given by Jesus access to God. We have been given access to our Father. And I'm so grateful for it because until we get home, guess who's walking right alongside us? We are not on this journey alone. And every tear you shed, there's someone Right there with you. There is a comforter with you. When Lazarus dies, Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead, and yet he still cries. 
Jesus knows how this ends, and yet he still mourns right alongside us. So be encouraged today, knowing that you are not alone, and knowing that you have already received the greatest miracle in all of, all of Scripture. You have been restored in God and access to God. You do not have to be alone. Remember this. As Jesus works, as God works to restore everything to what it should have always been, one day we will be home. Amen.